Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's now just over a month since the deadly campfire tore through communities in Butte County, and the road to recovery remains daunting with many evacuees still in shelters and residents just now beginning to return back to the site of the disaster to check on their homes and property. But even beyond the monumental task of recovery and rebuilding, the disaster has also raised questions about how California does business, given the new normal of year-round fire season. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on In-Depth, we're going to take a look at two of those big questions hanging in the air. First, How should the state's major utilities be managed in an era of increased fire risk? There is a whole nother layer of risk associated with utilities that just wasn't really fathomed 10 years ago. And speaking of risk, what will these fire disasters mean for California's insurance industry as the losses spiral out of control? Insurers are responding to uh, climate change, uh, the growing risk of more severe and more frequent and more unpredictable fires. Uh, They're responding to their losses. We are going to start our program today taking a look at the mounting anger facing PG&E. While the cause of the campfire is still under investigation, the utility has come under scrutiny after it emerged that some of its power equipment malfunctioned near the start point of the fire right around the time of the outbreak. That anger spilled out onto the streets earlier this week as protesters on Tuesday rallied in downtown San Francisco. KCBS's own Carrie Hudasek covered the demonstration, and she joins us now to fill us in on what she saw there. Uh, So, Carrie, what did you see on Tuesday? Well, Keith, I saw lots of chanting and lots of people holding signs, some of which read, PG&E kills, we pay. Another one read, this is a public health crisis. And another one read, no corporate bailout. Now, these were from groups such as the local Clean Energy Alliance, who marched from the Embarcadero Plaza in San Francisco to PG&E's building. Now, the most interesting point I saw during this protest was once they got to PG&E's building, they read the names of those who died in the campfire. Beverly Powers, who was 64 of Paradise. All right, yeah, and that's uh, certainly a, a stirring protest. Did you talk to any of the protesters about what in particular they're angry about? Well, basically, these people say it seems like too often that PG&E, in their words, blow up neighborhoods and then they're not held accountable for what they do and that the legislature then bails them out and lets them continue charging us for electricity. I spoke with Jessica Tovar with the local Clean Energy Alliance, and she sums it up this way. We're out here today to both honor the victims of paradise um, who were killed in the wildfires, but to also highlight that PG&E is at fault for the fires that happened there. Now, protester Fike Raza says they're responding not just to the campfire in Butte County, 
but also to other massive disasters we've seen in recent years. It seems like far too often PG&E burns down neighborhoods, blows up neighborhoods, and they aren't held responsible. Nothing, no action is taken. They're also causing these unnatural disasters because of their poor infrastructure and their lack of regard to safety. Now, I know that at past protests, demonstrators were calling for a public takeover of PG&E. Did you hear any of that kind of talk at this demonstration? Yes, they don't want PG&E to receive a bailout from the state. The bailout means that all ratepayers in California or PG&E territory would have to pay for the fires that they cause. And they want a complete public takeover of PG&E with more community choice and what they're calling a more decentralized grid. And they're frustrated also that PG&E executives get major bonuses instead of putting that money toward public safety, which they find to be an extremely important issue. Just to give us a sense of the tone of the thing, you know, I'm sure that you've covered a lot of uh, protests in your day. How angry were folks? They were pretty heated. I mean, they say that PG&E could have turned off the power before the campfire so that you know, this wouldn't ignite the way it did and just the destruction that we've seen so much, you know, so many people lost their lives. And they're really blaming this on the top executives, the top people that oversee a company such as this. And and they want something. They they just say something needs to be done so that we don't see continue to see wildfires and other big disasters like this. And how is PG&E responding to all this? So PG&E says that their hearts, obviously, they go out to the families that have lost so much. But right now, their focus is on recovery and rebuilding. That's what they told me in an email this week. All right. So that is just the view from uh, San Francisco this week as the anger over this controversy continues to grow. Uh, Carrie, thanks for covering that for us. Thanks so much, Keith. So as you heard right there, many of those angry at PG&E are indeed calling for a public takeover of the company. Remember, it is currently a private utility owned by investors, although it is closely regulated. So what would a public takeover mean exactly, both for PG&E and for the thousands upon thousands of customers who rely on its service to keep the lights on? To get some answers, I spoke with someone who's given this question a lot of thought. I am Severin Borenstein. I am a professor at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and director of the Energy Institute at Haas. Professor Borenstein says that this question isn't new. In fact, the debate over whether we're better off with private, shareholder-owned utilities or utilities run by the state, well, it goes back decades. And we know that it is not a settled question because here in California... Well, we've got both. In fact, the two largest... Southern California Edison and PG&E, San Diego Gas and Electric. They are investor-owned utilities. But the third largest utility in California is the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, which serves the city of Los Angeles and is a very big utility uh, and is part of the government. And then there's the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, SMUD, which is also a government entity, although it's not actually part of the city, it is a separate government entity. So there are lots of models out there. And then in other states, there are also co-ops that are formed by, in many cases, agriculture uh, farms in an area, and they create their own nonprofit organization to serve a certain area. So with all those options on the table, the debate remains... Which is best? And the simplistic answer you occasionally hear is, well, 
this type of utility or that type of utility has lower rates. Well, first of all, rates aren't the only thing. Reliability and other quality measures are important. And second of all, rates can be lower or higher for many reasons that may not tell us much about the efficiency of the firms. They may have just, for instance, gotten lucky and not invested or invested in a certain technology that worked out well. Unfortunately, though, he says, every approach has problems. We can go this investor-owned utility approach and say, you're really on the hook. And if you make a mistake, we're going to make your shareholders pay for it. But then that could end up raising the cost of capital. Now, that problem right there is actually a big piece of the debate right now. Pending legislation would protect PG&E from the potential liabilities associated with the campfire by allowing it to pass those extra costs on to ratepayers. Now, as you can imagine, the protesters that we heard from earlier, well, they oppose that legislation. They argue that the company itself should bear the brunt of the cost. But Professor Bornstein points out, If you take enough out of them, uh, they can't pay the bills. And under U.S. law, they'll declare bankruptcy. And if PG&E goes bankrupt, that would mean that it would be harder to borrow money, business gets less efficient, and in the end, prices go up for ratepayers anyway. We could, on the other hand, say, oh, no, we're not going to let you go bankrupt, but then that's going to undermine the incentives for the utility to behave efficiently. So what about that other option, the public option? We could have the government just take it over, as we see in Los Angeles, but Government agencies don't have reputations for being the picture of efficiency. You know, anyone who stood in line at the DMV or waited to get service on a tax bill or whatever uh, recognizes that government workers and government organization aren't always very efficient. And in large part, that's because of moral hazard, because of incentive problems as well. So when we ask, well, what's the best way to do this? There isn't a best way. All of these are going to have some degree of incentive conflict problems and some degree of inefficiency. Unfortunately, it would seem this is a long-running debate because, well, there's just no easy answers. But something that has changed and is really shaking things up recently is the new wildfire threat and the potential liabilities that utilities face from starting fires. This is a risk, says Professor Bornstein, That just wasn't there before. Wildfires were not viewed as sort of a major part of the economic uh, fabric of a utility. Uh, And as a result, if you would go back 15 years or certainly 30 years, utilities were viewed as very, very safe investments. Even after the California electricity crisis in most parts of the country, utilities were viewed as very safe investments. And now we're starting to see with climate change and utilities being especially exposed to the risks of climate change, whether it's wildfires here or superstorms in New York or uh, uh, tornadoes or whatever, um, there is a whole other layer of risk associated with utilities that just wasn't really fathomed 10 years ago. And that means that when we start talking about who has to pay up, those issues become much more important than we thought they were 10 or 20 years ago. Because 10 or 20 years ago, most utilities were just viewed as never even possibly facing the risk of bankruptcy, let alone how do we, what should the right policy be when they do. 
Now, in many places, we're seeing the possibility that utilities will face very extreme liabilities for some sort of safety or weather event. And we're having to grapple with, well, now what's the right way to organize the organization? Is there a reason why a utility with private investors would be less actively uh, focused on these safety issues? Well, you could. it's not clear whether they would be less or more focused on safety issues than a government agency. Obviously, in theory, the government agency is there to act in the best interest of the people, and the private company is acting in the best interest of the shareholders. So one view is, well, that means the governments are going to do a better job in handling these risks. Uh, but the alternative argument is government agencies are – paid employees who don't really have any stake in the company as a whole. Um, and the management are also just paid employees. And so they, there's no one who's really saying we have to make this firm efficient, both in keeping costs down, but also in uh, insuring ourselves against major mistakes. And so you could get a situation, and we've certainly seen cases, where the government agency doesn't behave very well, makes big mistakes, big even avoidable big mistakes. Um, so although there is a long debate about whether government would do a better job at this, um, the, it's not very settled. Uh, and so it, it would be nice if there were just a simple answer that where everybody does what's right and uses really good judgment, but uh, neither model uh, is really set up to do that very well. And unfortunately, there isn't a third option that is out there. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. That, unfortunately, there isn't a third option that is out there that say, oh, well, in that case, everybody would act in the best interest of society as a whole. If it were that simple, we would have gone to that third option. Uh, what's changed in the last couple of years is that the question which essentially nobody was discussing five years ago, has become much more front and center with the increased risk from mostly climate change-related uh, weather events. So folks that are listening to this, I mean, they're going to be thinking back to the 2010 San Bruno pipe explosion. They're going to think back to the fires of last year, the fires of this year. And I think in the back of their mind, they're just going to be wondering, you know, this is a company that has been associated with uh, a number of disasters that have been, uh, impacted people in, in uh, pretty profound ways. Is it even possible that there is not a better way of structuring this than what we've had so far? Well, I think no one would argue that the level of safety precaution that was being taken back before the San Bruno uh, disaster was appropriate. So I think everyone says that in, after that, in natural gas and after the wildfires here and with all of the effects of climate change, we do need to change the level of precaution because the risks are greater. That doesn't answer the question of the best way to change the level of precaution. That is, is should we maintain the same structure of investor-owned utilities and have a regulator work with them to increase the level of precaution? Or should we just have a wholesale change in the structure and have the government be the entity that runs the utility? Uh, that is an open question still 
even if we do know we need more safety or more precautionary uh, activities, uh, it's still not clear the best way to do it. You're listening to KCBS's In-Depth. That was Professor Severin Bornstein, who directs the Energy Institute at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Up next, we're going to take a look at another sector that may need to change how it does business too, that being the insurance industry. Today, it's my uh, sad duty to share with you uh, the loss figures associated with the 2018 wildfires that have so terribly devastated both Northern and Southern California. That is California Insurance Commissioner Dave Jones in a press conference held earlier this week, taking through the catalog of destruction left behind by the Camp Woolsey and Hill fires. There are 17,955 partial residential losses, 10,564 total residential losses. There were 1,648 partial commercial property losses, 350 total commercial property losses that were insured, and 9,457 auto and non-residential exposure losses. These are things like ocean... It's an early accounting of the confirmed losses from a fire season that included the most destructive and deadly fire in California's history. The grand total of these insured losses associated with these 2018 fires so far is $9.05 billion. Now, with losses mounting, Commissioner Jones says the insurance industry is feeling the pinch. This is a challenging moment for the insurance industry. Uh, 2017, there were extraordinary losses. 2018, extraordinary losses. And because of that, he says, in high-risk fire areas, we're seeing insurance get more expensive and harder to obtain. Uh, And I anticipate we will see more rate filings seeking to increase rates, and in particular the rates in the wildland urban interface. I anticipate we're going to see more insurers choosing not to renew insurance for those homes that they believe are at too great a risk, and I anticipate we'll see some insurers declining to write new insurance for those homes that are at great risk. For more perspective on what the insurance industry is up against and what this will all mean for property owners, we're going to turn now to Chris Folkman. He is a senior director of product management at catastrophe analytics company RMS. And Folkman says that the cost from fires has indeed skyrocketed in recent years. Since 2014, in the past four or five years, we've seen in North America $30 billion of loss. Um, That is unprecedented. Before that, I think you would be hard-pressed to find $30 billion of insurance loss from wildfire in all of the years before that, from 1900 to the present, because wildfire just didn't result in big losses. Um, It occurred, you know, 30, 50 years ago. Most of the wildfires stayed in national forests. They didn't cross over into neighborhoods, into cities. They didn't damage hundreds or even thousands of houses. That has changed because of the ferocity of the fires from warmer climates, from a lot more houses being built close to these forests. Um, and, And the calculus is changing and the risk is changing. And I think we can expect for some time that the risk of severe wildfires is going to be elevated. So broadly speaking, with this new risk, tell us what the insurance industry is facing up against now. Yeah, I think the big challenge is that wildfire in particular was not considered that big of a deal 
for a long time, you know, between the 1960s and the 1990s. Then something changed. And in 1991, we had the Oakland Hills fire. Um, in 2003, 2007, we had a bunch of pretty bad Southern California fires. And then something changed again. And in the past four years, 2015 through 2018, in North America, we've had an outbreak of very severe wildfires. Um, so the calculus has sort of changed, you know, and it's not something that's going away soon. We have a warmer climate. We have more severe weather conditions. We have a lot more houses being built in very high-risk areas. Um, so uh, the, the nature of the risk is changing for the insurance industry. Um, but I think both for insurers and for consumers, for policyholders, um, there is the possibility of adapting to this new reality. Um, the insurance industry is pretty well capitalized. It has $800 billion in the bank, or what they call surplus. Uh, California is the biggest insurance market in the U.S. You know, if California were a country, it would be the, the, the fourth biggest insurance market in the world. So everybody who's anybody in the insurance industry wants to do business uh, in California. And that's really good news for consumers. Um, so I think there will be uh, availability of homeowners insurance, even in the wake of these catastrophes. It might be more expensive in the wake of you know, the camp and the Woolsey fires. Um, but in the event that someone is declined for coverage, we also have something called the FAIR plan, FAIR access to insurance requirements, which guarantees coverage to people who are declined for coverage. So we have those mechanisms in place. Um, the insurers are well capitalized, and I think everybody, insurers and consumers, can adapt to the new reality of wildfire in California. So there is a lot of money swirling around, and I guess that that's a little bit of a cushion to help folks adapt, as you say. Uh, but it, it was just recently that we saw a company called Merced Property and Casual, Casualty. Uh, a judge ruled that they were not able to meet their obligations, and now the, they've essentially been liquidated. Uh, that seems to be a troubling sign. How, how much should we see that as a sign that the insurance industry really is facing some challenges? You know, I think uh, smaller insurance companies that are very geographically concentrated in just a couple of areas are going to be the ones that see the impact the most. Um, larger insurance companies, you know, they write Florida hurricane, they write California earthquake, they write, you know, rural wildfire risk. And that's the name of the game is diversification. That's good for, for solvency, for keeping money on the books in, in order to pay those claims. So uh, those smaller companies, I think, are, gonna, are going to be the ones that see the most impact. Can folks that live in high fire risk areas expect their premiums to go up in the coming years? I think it's likely in those very high risk areas where there have been a number of historical wildfires. Um, California insurers uh, have to set rates based on historical claims activity, and if there are a lot of uh, wildfires or other cat events, um, it would follow that coverages and prices might change going forward. Now, just looking at this more broadly, so you do bring up the notion that this is an industry with a lot of money in it, perhaps a, a lot of room to adapt, but... You know, when all of a sudden there's this new kind of disaster that is suddenly costing tens of billions of dollars, that's got to change some calculus. So what are some of the ways that you expect the industry to adapt? I think they're going to focus on areas that are the highest risk for uh, a wildfire, much like they focused on areas that were the highest risk for terrorism after the September 11 attacks, very dense urban areas with a lot of economic value. For wildfire, it's a little bit different. It's these areas where uh, neighborhoods meet forest. It's called the wildland-urban interface. 
um, and it's an area of very, very high risk for wildfire. I think there's going to be um, a lot of focus on home mitigation measures. There are practices that can be taken with construction and with home management that insulate uh, uh, a homeowner from risk, be that creating defensible space around your structure, mowing your lawn, keeping your roof in good condition. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of focus on that in terms of being uh, providing insurance credits and potentially um, some new legislations aimed at ensuring wildfire safety in these zones. So it might be the insurance industry that's lobbying for laws that push homeowners to make their structures more safe? Well, I think insurance companies want to uh, have some predictability in the outcome of their risk. And um, whether they have to charge more for houses that are in not good shape or mm -hmm. less for those that are very, very safe, they just want to understand the risk better. Um, and I think where the interests of the insurance industry and the interests of the consumer intersect is promoting safety practices. That way, the risk can be better understood, it can be mitigated, and safe outcomes can be achieved for everybody. Are there precedents for that? I mean, for example, you brought up uh, hurricanes and growing concern over hurricane damage. Has the insurance company been active in getting folks to get more hurricane safe? Absolutely. You know, I think you see examples of hurricane mitigation credits, which exist in Florida for doing things like hurricane shutters and different kinds of venting for flooding. Um, so I think in safety practices, that kind of drives a lot of innovation, which ultimately makes uh, homeowners safer and societies more resilient. So to the extent that we can promote those kind of safety practices, I think that will be, be better for everybody. And so last question for me, just want to make sure that uh, we have this. So you're saying that you expect the biggest responses from the insurance company is on the one hand, we may see some uh, rate increases in areas that are very fire prone. And then we also might see the insurance companies pushing for more safety uh, from homes, buildings and, you know, the surrounding areas. Yes. Uh, and I think that that data will be collected right now. Um, there are there are some aspects uh, when they are insuring a property that they simply won't know what the gutters look like or what what roof shingles are used or some very very specific uh, fire susceptibility measures that are taken. They're going to start measuring that. They're going to start sending out engineers to inspect buildings to take account of exactly the fire safety of each building. And I think based on that. Um, we're going to see a lot more effort being put into safe, resilient construction practices. Because if it's done, it can save you money on your insurance, it can make your home safer, and it can make your community more resilient. All right. And we've been speaking here to Chris Folkman. He is the Senior Director for Product Management at RMS. Chris, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. If you are in need of help with an insurance issue, the California Department of Insurance has a free hotline you can call. It's 1-800-927-4357. Again, that's 1-800-927-4357. Additional resources are available online as well, including a list of locations where the department staff is on hand to assist fire disaster survivors. You can find that at insurance.ca.gov. Again, that's the department's website, insurance.ca.gov. You've been listening to In-Depth on KCBS. Tune in again next week as we bring you another in-depth look at a major story making waves in your community. For KCBS, I'm Keith Manconi, and I'll see you next time. 
You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.